Welcome to Generation Ag, a podcast for the future of agriculture. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lavinia. And we're a couple of young Aggies passionate about celebrating our industry and sharing the stories of people who work in it. Today's episode is a very exciting one for Lavinia and I. When you start out podcasting, you're never really sure whether you're going to be taken seriously or if people will even want to listen. When we were contacted by today's guest to sit down and record an episode, it felt like we were receiving validation of both of those things. I am absolutely delighted to introduce today's guest, Western Australia's Minister for Agriculture and Food, Alana McTiernan, MLC. We're so grateful for the Minister's time and interest in being on the podcast. It's a media episode, so I'm not going to spend too long in this introduction. Grab a snack, settle in. We hope you all enjoy it. Good morning, uh, Minister. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us on this bright and early morning. We're super grateful for your time. We always like to ask at the start of our podcast, who is the Minister outside of politics oh gosh that's uh that's a hard question but listen guys thanks um very much too for the opportunity to be here because i just love the opportunity to have conversation um about agriculture and with the um with the farming community so i love what you're uh, what you're doing you know i'm guess i'm here in this role ultimately because from a very young age i had this really strong sense that you couldn't just complain about something, that this is a democracy. You can't just say someone should do something. Uh, that someone had to be you. So I've just never, to be honest, never quite understand why other people aren't interested in politics when they say, well, well whatever got you interested in politics? To me, it's really very much part of, of being in the community and being prepared to step up and take some responsibility. So I guess I got involved in um, various causes when I was um, a kid still at school um, and that went on uh, through my um, adult life and I eventually uh, landed up in the Labor Party and then um, ultimately ended up in, uh, in Parliament. Um, but, you know, I'm here because I really do think that we've really got to, you know, take responsibility for making, uh, for bringing the community to a sensible, strong place. And that's that's what I am. What am I outside that? Well, you know, a person that um, likes to uh, enjoy life, but absolutely feels uh, that we have responsibility um, for our community and wanted to work constructively with people to take us forward as a society. I think it's really great that you're sharing a little bit more of an insight because often we don't get the opportunity to have a sort of one-on-one chat with you. And we were just talking before about the fact that, um, you know, you had an interesting career getting into agriculture. So can you touch on that a little bit more? I came from Melbourne originally from a, you know, uh, working class housing commission suburb in Melbourne and I came over here when I was um, 18, Uh, got a one-way ticket from my family Um, (laughs) and uh, in fact my very first job was a secretary in an agricultural research company that my uh, brother had, uh, had set up so I got to learn the age of 18, a lot about mastitis test kits and um, moisture testing in in wheat. Uh, so that was my 
uh, first agricultural experience. But I guess when I was um, uh, minister responsible uh, in the 2001-2008, I was a minister responsible for pastoral land, so got really, really engaged in, in the whole pastoral sector. And of course, as minister responsible for transport, I had uh, a lot to do with um, farming communities in terms of road rail shipping issues. So uh, then when I went into federal parliament, I really developed a real interest in agriculture. Um, I was deputy chair of the parliament's Northern Australia Committee, but just became very engaged in um, agricultural issues and also the issues of uh, digital connectivity and the importance of having uh, that capability for our farms to enable the farms in WA to remain um, globally competitive. I think that's really important. I think that's definitely an aspect that a lot of Western Australians that are in farming really want to know because, you know, a lot of them have the most advanced technologies and they want to stay up there so that they can keep producing for an international market. And there's um, an enormous taste out there amongst um, farmers, and I note from uh, your area out in Esperance, yep. they're, uh, they're really out there being incredibly um, innovative. We just see example after example of uh, of great innovation that's taking place. But one of the difficulties obviously has been uh, that we don't have uh, world-class uh, enterprise-grade broadband available uh, to uh, our farmers. So one of the, and even though this is a federal responsibility, uh, we, had, we were recognising that, the, you know, the NBN is not is not doing it. You know, too many people have been uh, put onto SkyMaster. There's, you know, you can't get enterprise-grade stuff. So inspired a little bit by this farmer that I met from uh, Minanu when I, my first uh, week in um, uh, ag, uh, we set aside money for a, a digital farm program which would actually help, really, we call it the last mile, but obviously it's a lot more than the last mile, but not, so working out how it, we can invest in infrastructure that's going to give uh, that enterprise-grade broadband. And we've been getting some amazing results. So we've been offering uh, 15, uh, 50% funding um, and the other shares have been put in by uh, the service providers and by shires and by farming groups and we are getting really great results for we've put five million into this and I just think we've we've improved uh, broadband services to about uh, 1200 uh, farming businesses and we're just going out with another round because it has in fact been so successful and we always say like WA farmers are largely, overwhelmingly, um, on the international market. And we can't have a situation where they've got one hand tied behind their back because they just don't have the digital infrastructure that their competing uh, jurisdictions have. So we've got to go in there and and provide help there. Mm. I'm so glad you touched on innovation in that space because another area of innovation that I believe WA farmers in particular are really good at is around water management and stewardship of the land. I know that that's something that you're really passionate about. So would you maybe like to talk about, um, yeah, your what stewardship of our natural resources means for you? Oh, it's absolutely critical. It's, it's um, uh, critical for the future of agriculture. I mean, we can't just sweat the asset. Uh, we re- And we are, we are <coughs> sorry, uh, we are coming ac- across some um, real... 
um, boundaries now, like we're finding, for example, the protein levels in our wheat are dropping. Um, now, we've, you know, there's been some creative responses through AJIC. Let's look at the biscuit market in Indonesia and whatever. But we do have to look at also some more systemic responses. So, um, and obviously, um, enlightened farmers absolutely understand that the long-term value of this asset is um, is going to require real engagement on the natural resource value. But look, are, are we? Uh, is there more that could be done in this? I absolutely think there is, and I would like to see us sort of open our mind to some of the best practice. Not get you know, um, locked into or uh, in a reflex reaction against some of the people that are, are putting forward new ideas, but being open to those new ideas. Uh, and but I do think there's a role for government in doing this. For example, uh, we have we are going to do some long range trials of some of these regenerative farming practices. For example, we're also going to be doing field studies, so we're trying to sort of fill some of that gap. But one of the interesting insights that we are getting, and that we've really got to, uh, I think, wrap our head around, is that um, it's not only been carbon emissions that has caused climate change, uh, that really uh, systemic over the last 100 years, change in our landscape has been a contributor to climate change. And there are CSIRO studies, other studies that have been done that suggest that that has been uh, a contributor to the decline in rainfall in the southern half of the state. So we've got to be thinking about that. Well, what's the, how, how do we, how do we address that? And, and is there, um, a response. Now, we, we obviously want an agricultural industry. We want people out there in those uh, in those regions. And we're not talking about people walking off farms. But how do we constructively uh, get um, more vegetation into the landscape to help us actually deal with the climate issue? Another area of um, sort of, I guess we'll call it climate management, that you are quite passionate about, Minister, is um, carbon farming. For those who are unfamiliar, given we we do have quite a youth audience um, on this podcast, could you elaborate on what that is and what that means for our industry? Yeah, and there's um, carbon farming is basically about increasing the amount of vegetation and the amount of CO2 that is sequestered in that vegetation. Uh, so there's different types, like they in the Kimberley, for example, on uh, some of the pastoral leases in the high, very high rainfall areas up there, they have what they call savanna burning. So you fire the country at the beginning of the season, and ironically, um, because that stops a hot burn at the end of the season, that is actually considered to be a carbon sequestration method. And so there's an approved methodology and they can sell carbon credits. So they get that methodology is said to accumulate a certain amount of carbon and that carbon, um, those can be sold to people that need emission offsets. Um, In the rangelands, we have a different type, and this is the one that we've been particularly uh, championing. Uh, We have human-induced regeneration. So you have the pastoral lands, uh, you 
manage stock, you take stock off certain areas, uh, you have that land regenerate, you have a way of monitoring that, and that accretion of carbon in that increased vegetation, that then can be sold as a carbon credit. We also have tree planting, which is the more classic and the one people more easily understand. But we don't want to replace prime agricultural land with that, but we want to look at the ways in which we can mix that in, particularly um, with uh, pasture and with grazing, to see how we could get carbon credits from that. And the other harder one, and there is only one methodology that's been uh, approved to date, is the soil carbon. So it is um, uh, developing carbon um, in the in the soil, and lots of different practices will help that. Um, some of the farmers down in Esperance the other day were telling me that this deep ripping that we're um, project that we've been working on, we've got funding um, from our agency with. Uh, the um, GRDC to do that deep ripping, that that's going to help get uh, more uh, root growth in the soil. Obviously, the practices of having um, perennials or having constant ground cover is going to help with the uh, soil, the soil carbon volumes. But we've, there's got to be a lot more work done on establishing how you really, um, how you monitor that and how you best generate it. And there's um, argument and debate going on about which parts of the state. Now, some of the high rainfall areas, we're told, are the most prospective areas. But part of the problem with that is they're not the areas that are in most needs for because that's a pretty resilient area anyhow um they're not the areas that like the eastern uh, wheat belt or some of those areas around Ravensthorpe or the southern rangelands that are the ones that really um are, where we desperately need to build a bit more resilience given what's happening with the climate I was recently up north and it was perfect timing because I asked a few pastoralists up there that are on stations kind of what's happening with the Welfare Act, which I think is really relevant right now as you appointed a new panel at the end of last year. So can you talk to us a little bit about where that's at and what's going on with the Animal Welfare Act? Well, we've put together a pretty fantastic panel, I must say. They've been, uh, they are a really good set of, uh, got a really good set of skills. Uh, many people would know Catherine Marriott, for example, who's uh, um, uh, on it, uh, chaired by Linda Black, um, who's uh, a lawyer with, um, and uh is really had had some experience in uh, in animal welfare prosecution. So what we are trying to do is to make the legislation um, more contemporary and more fit for purpose, and where uh, the where it is not just based on this concept of identifying random acts of cruelty and going in and prosecuting those random acts of cruelty. Um, Uh, but rather having agreed standards and guidelines on how you raise animals, um, what what is the level of care that is required, and also entrenching, and we really have to do this, we have to acknowledge that the welfare of the animal is actually going to also include some consideration of their innate behaviours. So if you've got a chook in a cage... Um, and you say, well, the chook hasn't got any disease and it's putting on weight, but it can't do anything that a bird normally does, like flap its wings or 
perch or, you know, that is we're not capturing what really the community thinks is a requirement for animal welfare. So it is a recognition that uh, we, for those animals that we are raising for our consumption, we need to make sure that uh, their lives have um, some quality about them. So it's not just about being disease-free and getting enough to eat. It's incorporating that. Uh, and I think this is really... Um, important for the livestock industry because you know if we don't get this right if we don't get this animal welfare thing right you know that is an existential threat uh to the to the industry so we and the panel told me that that you know the enlightened farmers are really really coming to to understand that um, now, we're not going to be able to, as I was, we had a forum uh, yesterday and I went and spoke to it and, you know, we we had the um, uh, the activists that were there that are, at, you know, fundamentally opposed to the whole notion of, uh, of uh, rearing of livestock. And I said, well, that's not where um, the majority of our community are. They are, uh, do believe that we are part, part of the uh, natural food chain and that we are going to be um, needing animals uh, as part of our uh, our diet, food and fibre. Um, and that, um, but there is a huge expectation in the community that this is that those animals have a reasonable life. Yeah. Um, I remember one guy used to say one of the uh, free-range uh, poultry farmers down um, down south used to say, "As long as it's only one bad day that they have, you know, then." And even we're seeing, you know, um, immense efforts in with some operators. You look at the work that Harvey Beef have been doing to make sure that even that last day is as good as it um, is as it can get and that um, there are um, uh, real steps taken to reduce uh, the amount of stress that the animal uh, that the animal goes through at the, in their last phases of their lives. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. So moving forward into 2020, what is the public forum going to do and what are the plans with the Animal Welfare Okay, Act? so we're, um, I've said to the uh, panel that this is got, we've got to, I want a report on proposed changes um, by uh, Ju- June this year. Um, that I think what so often happens in ag is that there are reviews and there's draft bills and nothing ever happens. I mean, I'm, uh, and it will be a moderate piece of legislation because we've got to get it through the legislative uh, council, um, and so we need to bring, uh, we need to uh, really get uh, get support from across the board. So we're. Um, uh, as I said, some basic principles that we want to entrench, the the idea that we have a, a reasonable monitoring, that we set standards, we have an orderly process for monitoring those. I know farmers are concerned uh, that if we are going to have monitoring of standards, um, that they want to be confident that the people that are doing the monitoring know what they're talking about and that they are uh, properly trained uh, people that do it. And I, I understand that. You don't want 
um, you know, some naive person that has no understanding of the realities going out there. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is we've got to demonstrate to the community uh, that we are that those officers are going to be truly independently uh, assessing the performance on the standards. So we're we're very clear that we would ensure that those inspectors would be um, well trained and and I think one of the concerns that I've heard from farmers all but not just people fresh out of university they've got to have some practical experience we understand that yeah I think that's really important I think experience is everything and I think young students coming through in the agricultural industry do need to understand that experience is the only way they're going to actually further their career particularly in an industry where animal welfare is a huge thing that's right and um, yeah so it's about uh, and I think what we're seeing, obviously, with the younger generation, they're mixing with the sort of people that, um, you know, the many young people that are um, expressing concern about animal welfare that are turning to veganism um, uh, because of concern about the carbon footprint and animal welfare. So they sort of, like, see those people and they know those people. So that, I think, helps um, them understand what's going on here. And... I Look, I'm very concerned about us going into monoculture. I, you know, I think, and I'm really pleased to see Meat and Livestock Australia have got on board, and they're they're saying we we want to be carbon neutral by 2030. Now, I think that's a very ambitious time frame, but it's a fantastic uh, focus for the industry to have. But it's I don't know how much that they're really doing on farming systems. They're mm. focusing probably more on the individual animal and what you feed the animal yeah. and how you breed the animal, whereas I think we've also got to be looking at at the systems and how, how we can use animals in the... Um, in the environment, you know, to reduce our reliance on petrochemical fertilisers because I think that's um, misunderstood that as we replace animals as natural fertilisers, we're bringing um, fertilisers in often that have been made from coal. Um, and, uh, And so we have to really make sure that we've got a sophisticated calculation and understanding of what is causing what and how having animals in the system actually can improve sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, we've sort of just uh, sort of touched a little bit on that anti-agriculture activism um, just now in this conversation, but I'd love t- for you to maybe address some producers who might be concerned about um, the government's spending, and I'll put that in air quotes, um, that the perception that activists given the airtime that they get, uh, can seem to push their agenda a bit stronger or louder than the voices that agriculturalists themselves have. So would you like to address maybe anyone who has concerns around that? Yeah, I mean, I, I as I said at this meeting and addressing the animal activists yesterday, you know, I'm saying the reality is people are deeply concerned about animal welfare, and they are. Like, there is no issue that we deal with that gets more responses than whether it's puppies or chalks or live acts, you know, they are the issues that really bring people out. There's, so there is a, 
a strong desire to see good animal welfare and we have to we have to accept that and i think smart modern farmers know that the requ- there is a, a growing requirement for transparency around all of these issues and that's what we're trying to deliver like you can't credibly as a farming organisation say oh we support these national standards and guidelines but hey guys we don't want you actually to be able to enforce them you know like it is meaningless it now so we're in a very we've got to play um now i could be like barnaby joyce that goes and says to uh all of the ah don't worry about all them activists and and well i'm going to demolish all of the animal welfare architecture which he did do in the federal government uh and the whole thing End, ended in chaos and you saw what happened when you had a system that absolutely let, uh, lost credibility um, and they were in a stone's throw of losing that entire uh, that entire industry people that just you know are doing that that are not taking proper regard of animal welfare are actually enemies of the industry and I, I just you need to understand that because you are going to create uh, such a, a sort of a groundswell and what often happens is that you have an overcorrection uh, and we saw that in 2011 when there was a massive under response uh, to an issue that then led to the when public uproar came and then led to an overreaction that created chaos within the industry and we were very clear when the live export thing came up we were not arguing for uh, the cessation of the industry because we understood its role but we said this industry at the moment has no credibility we want to put a ban in over the over the summer months because you it's hard to justify sending sheep into those um, those conditions um, and have greater trans, you know greater reporting and transparency of reporting which was a pretty moderate position now you know I was almost burned alive at the um, at the farming meeting with Catanning and they all praised Barnaby Joyce because he's the great hero who actually caused it in the first place by taking off all of the controls and all of the scrutiny so I just say to farmers look I'm here uh, my job is to call this thing as honestly as I can. And we do need in a democracy to weigh up those issues. But the interesting thing is that in a market sense, it is actually in the interests of the farmers to have a credible animal welfare regime. It is not in their interest not to have it because there will continue to be then all of these concerns and good and decent people that are in markets that are saying, well, we're not going to, we're not going to buy that food. So you know, it's uh, as I said, there's a real existential issue here, and we've got to understand that you know the community is changing, and farmers do love their animals. We love your animals. Well, we're, you know, we're not going to be setting in place. We're we're talking about these national standards and guidelines that you've all signed off on. But we want it. We want to now be able to say, well, we're actually they're enforced, being enforced. Mm. I think that's often something that has misled a lot of people. I mean, we spoke about it off the record before about the fact that we've got these kind of 
people in agriculture that are suddenly starting to really educate themselves and investigate a little bit more and not just read the media headline and that be the only thing that they understand. And it's really awesome now that we have platforms like this where you can actually say what's really going on without the media portraying a headline that actually isn't telling the full truth. Well, that's true. Um, And look, I think one of the interesting things in the farming community is that they will listen, you know, as you're spending your hours out there, that they actually are probably doing more in terms of listening uh, than many other communities. So I think, you know, it's fantastic that you guys uh, have set up this sort of platform where you can have some extended and complex conversations because you can't always put these things in 25 words or less. You know, they are more complex ideas. Well, that's um, it's the nature of the modern consumer. I think um, we have to learn to that our consumer is changing as an industry. The customer we're producing food for is different to perhaps when our farms were purchased or even started, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, I'm really excited about this whole concept of um, communicating around shared values. So it's no good anymore to sit in opposing camps from each other and just throw rocks and and hope one of them lands. We have to really get on the same page with our consumers um, and these anti-animal activists and really get at the heart of what it is that they're concerned about and how can we address that because like you said we love our animals they love animals we're the same we're the same at the end of the day that's right and and I think it's also recognizing that indeed you may open up new markets and uh, markets you know if you're able to establish a uh, you've got a more nutrient dense product or um, you've got a very high ethical standard in relation to the animal welfare you know people are looking for that people want to eat eggs but you know the I mean Coles and Woolworths aren't making an Audi aren't making the decisions to move out of cage-free eggs um, uh, without a reason and they're determining that this is where their market is moving so uh, now, pet farmers do need to have decent notice of, of major shifts, and I think there's been a problem there. But this is where where people are going, and you've got to understand your market. We had this fabulous woman that um, was brought out from the Midwest of the US, and she said, like, what consumers want to know? They want... They want you to listen to them. Like, you know, people now in this age of food evangelism um, and they want to know, it's not, the approach shouldn't be, oh, we've got to get them city folk to understand the country. You've got to understand your market. And but and I can tell you, what, notwithstanding the animal activists, there is enormous goodwill out there for farmers. And you see that demonstrated in those... Um, tributes that are paid at the at the Royal Show mm. where, um, you know, tens of thousands of kids have written letters. And we yeah. don't – and I think it is interesting. We get very, very little, uh, very, very little anti-farmer um, uh, from our city constituents, um, but we do get a lot of farmers bashing people that live in the city. I always <laughs> say – Guys, you know, like, why, why do you bash inner city latte drinkers? They probably actually, this resurgence of latte, you know, over the last decade has probably doubled the demand for fresh milk. Yeah, and yeah. avocado uh, growers must be uh, loving latte right, right now. <laughs> I, I, I think that probably stems a little bit from the traditional agricultural values. I think people are a little bit scared. 
I think it's that it's that I think we spoke about it before that that ag industry we are so close tight knit we love our little space and then we let other people in and we get a little bit scared but I think at the end of the day these people are really you know influencing our industry more than we know uh, and look I think you're you're right about that that it is uh, that there is fear out there and and I understand that and I, I guess it's sort of like what we are going through as a society like things are changing very rapidly there's people in jobs that are concerned about well am I going to have a few you know is my job going to be automated you know we see that you know we see the reaction of maritime workers Um, so there is fear and there is concern um, about uh, what this is going to mean for the future of their their farms but I do remember I was at we're at Cunderdon Ag School and um a group of there, and we would we had um, given a grant for them to do some really interesting Internet of Things uh, projects, uh, and a number of these young guys sort of surrounded me and said, "Oh, my dad said that your anti-live export, you know, um, you know, what's that going to do for our industry?" And I said, "Guys, look, you've got to understand, we are not uh, seeking to end live export. We're seeking to contain it." And you've got to understand negative images like this are far more... Negative images like we saw um, on that ship are damaging. Like, they're the real threat. They are the real threat. Um, Not just to live eggs. They actually become a real threat to the whole uh, livestock industry. So we've got to get our house in order. Like, we can't afford to allow... Uh, those sorts of things to be seen because it undermines our credibility. So we've got to, like, get it right um, and um, and hopefully. So this is a hard debate. Yeah, oh, definitely. It's a hard debate. Um, but, you know, as I say, I'm there to – my job is to give the – you know, to take this forward as uh, fearlessly as I can – um, and um, and I do get a sense that the industry is, you know, understanding that this is the path that we've got to move down. Yeah. And I think you just touched on Cunderdon. So obviously we have, you know, a lot of young people in agriculture that are really, you know, wanting to be in this industry. But we've also had a lot of people talking about how they don't believe there's going to be an industry for young people to go into. So do you want to just touch on your thoughts on people's concerns and what would you like to see happen for young people who want to get back into regional and rural Australia? Uh, Look, I... There is going to be a future for the industry because people are going to require protein. As, as um, uh, the, I remember the che- the president of the Kindernup uh, Co-op saying to me, he said, like, okay, we're livestock and grain producers. If the whole world goes vegan, well, we will produce the the protein for them to make their uh, uh, to make their vegan products. There is going to be, you know, we are. There is a future there, absolutely. And what I love going to those ag schools is just uh, the ethos of hard work like these kids are all, uh, they go home on weekends and they work on the, the farms. You know, they they really are trained for incredible hard work and I find that really amazing. But one of the um, challenges is it is if you haven't got a family farm, if you're not in line for inheriting a family farm, it's going to become 
increasingly difficult, particularly as there's now so much competition from you know, superannuation funds and foreign companies buying up um, farms, that is going to become tricky, although there will be roles for farm managers. I personally love the idea of family farms, family farms because I think there is a greater sense of stewardship that that, um, that engenders. Um, but someone came up with an idea, uh, say, for example, around Denmark, 90 percent of kids that go to De- Denmark at college uh, do not have uh, are not from farming families um, uh, and one and there's a, a resurgence in the sheep market but a lot of people that have got out of sheep don't want to go back into sheep because it's too much too much work so there was this idea well why wouldn't you have a situation where uh, you know young would-be farmers could buy some sheep and run the sheep and have sort of almost like a, a share cropping, but a, a share sheep farming yeah. um, enterprise. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's a, a good and interesting model yeah. um, that would enable um, some people to get back in to use this land valuably. valuably. Um, but it is the price of agricultural land is now such that it is very hard uh, for new people um, without considerable means to get into the show. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely something that is of concern. But I think with technology and ag tech just becoming a bigger thing, that's an industry I think a lot of people will move into. Well, that's right. And there are lots of jobs in agriculture. And yeah. and one of the th- – like what we're seeing, and I'm, uh, I'm trying to work out how we uh, address this, but a lot of the um, stats about number of people employed in agriculture I think underestimated because mm. – so you've got all of these people um, uh, uh, selling and maintaining um, the big ag equipment, you know, all of those uh, f- huge machines. harvesters and yeah. machines that drive modern farming. Now, that – and there is a massive growth in that. Like even one company has, you know, hundreds of people spread right throughout the grain belt that work in the area of spare parts, you mm, know, just actually definitely. monitoring spare parts. We, mm-hmm. So when we – but we don't count those numbers as farms have become um, more automated, but we're not counting in agriculture those, can, those jobs that are absolutely vital – to that, so we, I think there's, we've got a, we've got some economists looking at how we might, um, how we might address that. Yeah, okay, mm. that's really interesting because mm. yeah, that machines are getting bigger, they're getting more advanced, and you need people who have certain intellect to be able to operate a lot of them or fix them now. Oh, that's right, and there needs there and. Just as we've seen in mining, for example, the other week we opened, uh, we announced um, uh, this new project that's going to be built at Collie where they're going to be teaching um, uh, people how to operate uh, these autonomous mine vehicles. So, you know, you can imagine we've got to make sure that our ag colleges are actually, that we've got that same capacity to be teaching, you know, these increasingly automated... uh, But there's huge work in that. I mean, these machines have to be maintained. You need spare parts. You need people that actually understand them um, to sell, maintain and... 
Well, there's this fabulous stat, and I can't recall it exactly around, because, you know, there's obvious concern around automation of an industry that you're going to lose jobs. But I think out of mining, it works out to be for every job that's lost to automation, uh, you gain 1.2 or 1.4 jobs on the maintenance technology uh, side of things. So it's it feels daunting and scary as an industry, but it just means a bit of a shift in where we train people. Yeah, and look, and certainly the research out there is uh, it's very unclear um, where the numbers are ultimately going to lie. But I think we do have to understand that there are definitely new jobs that are coming online because of this. And sometimes, you know, stuff that is not terribly safe to do now, we can take people out of the unsafe situation. But all that... And you can see, you see those big, you know, Mora and in Katanning, those, you know, massive enterprises um, which are focused on farm machinery... Um, employing hundreds of people um, are really very much part of that. So you might not be actually physically working on the land, but you are uh, you are creating, repairing uh, the machinery that is um, used on the land. And just uh, um, we um, gave some uh, assistance for a, a company down in Albany to expand uh, their. Um, their workforce and their technology to get some new technology in and they build agricultural machinery um, for the farmers in that area and they you know are employing um, uh, dozens of people uh, supporting the agricultural industry and they've developed for example a rock picker that they're now exporting to Russia. Yeah, Mm. that's amazing. Yeah, and then you also have the whole um, sort of export side of the supply chain as well. So, And that's all agriculture to me, you know. For me, the agriculture industry starts, you know, at the research technology end and ends when the consumer puts the product in their mouth. So Mm. you have all of these fabulous career opportunities all along that all, all along yeah. that chain so yeah. and look one of the things is we you know the department uh you know under the previous government a sort of strategic decision had been made to really wind back the r&d now we think that you can't do that you need long-term uh, jobs you need people that really develop an institutional knowledge like we were down in down in Esperance and uh, Spicy was retiring after 47 years yeah. um, in the uh, in the industry. We're handing out um, certificates for people that had been down there for 30 years. Now, they just, the knowledge that they bring and that they hand on, you've got young guys like Tom Edwards, you know, in his 20s that is working side by side by side with Mark Spencer and Spicy and, and you know, bringing his knowledge together uh, with their deep understanding of, of, of the country and the, uh, and the people and you need that. So uh, I think just we do and R&D, very exciting area to be in. Um, and, but as you say, all along the food chain to marketing, to developing new products, um, one of the things, one of the thrusts that we are is, is trying to build, we are largely commodity sellers, but trying to build the percentage of value-add that we have here in the ag space. At the moment, it's only about 16% of what we produce. We, um, we process in some way or add value to in some way when we're trying to uh, turn that around with a lot of, and even things like the brewery down in um, Esperance. I shouldn't be talking so much about Esperance. <laughs> but the it's brewery. a great place, you can. 
you know, they are so they use uh, local uh, local barley. Yeah, and 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 they're using and they're trialling this or have developed this method of uh, non um, non malted barley. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about diversification of markets. I mean, what most of our barley goes to China, but mm-hmm. we can see now we've got we've had various problems with China where they have been angry with the federal government, so they start these. Um, um, competition actions um, against uh, against us. We have things like this um, coronavirus, which could disrupt the market a little bit. Hopefully, it won't. Um, so, but I think the key message is we need to have a di- we need to have diversity um, for all of our uh, our products. We need to have these um, alternatives and and to get that value add opportunity. I mean that's created a whole heap of new jobs uh, down in uh, in Esperance and. Um, it seems like the number of people there drinking this beer uh, <laughs> cr- increased the quotient of human happiness. <laughs> I love that. Heard it here first. <laughs> um, I feel like that's a good way to have um, sort of come full circle. But uh, as a last question, is there any other plans you have for 2020 that we haven't covered off that you're excited about you'd like to share? Look, we are working on a bunch of proposals that we're sort of putting to the federal government. We really want to try to work cooperatively with the feds on this future drought fund. So we've got uh, four um, particular projects that we're working on that we think where we need to do some really um, put effort into building the resilience, actually building the rebuilding uh, the landscape, building uh, water supply um, in a in a sophisticated way that is taking into account what really is going on in the long term. So this is not um, we don't we had very bad season across rainwise um, across the state in 2019. Um, the previous three seasons, for most part, had been quite good, in some cases very good. Um, but our problem is a more systemic one. It's been going on uh, for decades, and it is that drop in that rainfall and that um, reduced capability in our soils. So we want to not just focus on the short-term drought, but rather this long-term interdecadal decline, um, which is going to get worse if we don't do something to um, uh, change the landscape. Mm. I think that's definitely something that is on the forefront of a lot of people in ag's mind at the moment. So it's good to know that you guys are working alongside the federal government to try and have not just a short-term plan, because I think that's what everyone wants, but thinking long-term is a smart way to do it because yeah this is going to be a long-term impact considering of what's happened over east with some people being in drought for over 10 years now that's right and um what we've tended not to have droughts that have been that extended so yeah. it's been a slightly different but what we do get concerned about but because ours is a long slow drop that we're not getting the same share of the money. So mm, we've yeah. been we've been trying to, in a very respectful and nice way, recognising that what those farmers have been experiencing over there has in in the short term been far worse than generally here. 
But when we're going into that future drought fund that has now been set up, which the federal government is going to put $100 million a year, we think that we should be getting at least $10 million of that a year here in WA. Yeah. And we want to, and, you know, we recognise that we're going to have to stump up some dough mm. um, to, to do this. Um, and uh, that's what we're working on. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been great and I'm sure we'll definitely have some more conversations later on with the year with you. Fabulous and I really enjoyed it and good luck. I hope your podcast goes well. Oh, thank you thank so much, you. Minister. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye.